episode of the podcast. This is a very special episode. I brought on Pastor Mike Walrid. I found a clip of him preaching at his church that um, I picked up and did a video on. It went viral. It just took off. So I had to get him on the podcast. And this was a really awesome conversation. He pastors a church in Harlem, New York City. We talk about the Bible, about what it means to be a, a Jesus follower versus being just a Christian. Man, just buckle up. I'm, I'll, I will play the clip that I picked up for social media in the uh, in between spot between this intro and my actual interview, so you have some kind of context. But man, this was such a good conversation, and I really think you're going to enjoy it. So thanks for checking out the podcast, and um, give me your feedback. I would love to know if this conversation was edifying to you, if it was helpful for you, um, it certainly was for me. And as always, if you want to support the work that we do, you can share this podcast. You can like and subscribe to our uh, either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube channel. And we are a nonprofit organization holding space for thousands of people as they navigate a better path forward in their Christian faith beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. So if you want to donate, you can do that at the link in our show notes. All donations in the U.S., are tax deductible. All right, friends, without further ado, here's my interview with Pastor Mike. Talk to you all later. Sometimes I hear pastors say things that absolutely blow me away, like this one. You got preachers up here talking about they are against abortion. Good, so don't have one then. But don't impose your feelings on other people because your patriarchy is reckless. I don't think members of the LGBTQ plus community are of God. Good. You don't associate with them. But don't try to diminish somebody's humanity in Jesus' name because you don't understand the complexity of God's creativity. Who else thinks I need to get this pastor on the podcast immediately? All right. The the people demanded this podcast, uh, <laughs> this conversation to happen. So I did my best. I tracked you down. Pastor Mike Walrand, uh, pastor in Harlem, New York City, not too far from me. I'm, I'm by Philadelphia in New Jersey, about okay. an hour and a half train ride. So not too far. Excellent. Thanks for making time for coming on the podcast. It means the world. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Listen, I, I try to accommodate certain requests that I think are, you know, legitimate. <laughs> and other people are like, Pastor Mike, they're trying to reach you. So, yeah, so I we made it happen. Yeah, so f- just so the audience knows, I I found a clip of you. Actually, I found it a while ago, and I I couldn't find it again. I'm like, dang it, this this thing that you said was so good, and then it popped back up. I'm like, oh, perfect. So I grabbed it. I just made a short little reel. I had no microphone on. I'm like, hey guys, check this out. And then I ended it. I ended with uh, who thinks I should bring Pastor Mike on the podcast, and the clip just took off. It has like a hundred thousand likes on Instagram, and your wow. your your clip was awesome. I'll make sure I put it um in the beginning of this video for people to listen to ahead of time. And I said, I got to track this this pastor down and talk to him because it, so many people in my in the spaces I existed were like, oh my God, if only I knew a pastor like this a long time ago. Oh my God, where does this person exist? So I, I want to start here. Give us the background. Give us your background. Um, were you, were you a, a New York City native? How did you end up becoming a pastor uh, of a church in Harlem? Well, I, I'm not New York City native, but I am a New York. Not in New York City. I grew up on Long Island in Nassau County, and um, I left New York. I went to college in Atlanta, the Morehouse College, 
And then from Morehouse, I went to Duke Divinity uh, School. And then I started pastoring in North Carolina in 1996. I was 25 years old. I started uh, pastoring my first, first church I was serving. I was there for eight years. And then the opportunity uh, to come back home to New York came available. And it was a church I, I knew I had preached there several times. And they were looking for a pastor. So I came and started in July of 2004. It was an amazing journey. It was, it was a challenge that really inspired me because, you know, the congregation was maybe 100, 200 people. I actually left the amazing congregation in North Carolina, but I knew I was supposed to be in New York. Mm. And that was in, again, 04. Um, and we just started working, man. And the church it literally exploded. I mean, it has been a journey, 19 years. We probably, we stopped taking count. We stopped counting membership in 2019. Cause I said, a lot of times the membership numbers are ego for pastors. And I was like, yeah. and I remember that scripture with David, where God was angry with David for keeping a census of the people, right? So I stopped. When we stopped taking members, uh, counting membership in 2019, we had about 11,000 members. Wow. Yeah. And so we, we, we just stopped. So now we do baptize and all of that. I tell people, if you come one time, you're part of the family at FCBC. That's it. <laughs> so walk, walk me through some of like your theological convictions. I mean, the video that I saw, I was like, wow, this is just, for me, it, it, you know, listen, I grew up in conservative evangelical fundamentalism. That's my background, homeschool, John MacArthur kind of upbringing. And a lot of people, I'm sure you're aware of the term deconstruction and just people kind of renegotiating their faith. For me, yeah. Trump was a wake-up call that something is way wrong. I'm, I'm late to the party in so many ways, trying yeah. to make up for lost time. For you, you know, that clip that I, I think the reason why it went viral is people are thirsty to see people um, who are committed Christians, right, who are saying, actually, we can see these things differently. And I would argue maybe in a more human flourishing centered way. Yeah. Um, walk me through that. You know, yeah. what, what was that journey like for you? So I, I will say I, 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 I don't, I didn't grow up in a religiously conservative environment. My family, we're originally from Barbados. And so a lot of my family, my mother included, grew up Anglican, which is extremely kind of, <laughs> kind of conservative. Yeah. Came to the United States, and some of my family became Episcopal, some United Methodist. We, my family joined the United Methodist Church. So things like women preaching, I'd always seen in the Methodist Church. So that was nothing new for me. I kind of left, if you want to say left the faith when I was a teen. I got tired of it. And uh, I felt a call to ministry when I was a freshman at Morehouse College. But I started pastoring, as I said, in 96. And, you know, I was doing what was expected. I'm teaching standard doctrinal stuff, preaching doctrinal sermons. And one day I was getting ready for Bible study and preparing in my office. And man, this was like early 97. And I realized, I really asked myself, I was like, do, I, do you really believe this that you're teaching? I, I was like, I don't think I believe a lot of what I was teaching. It was just what was expected, right? And so I will never forget that night. I decided I wasn't gonna teach what I planned on teaching that night, came upstairs, to the uh, sanctuary for Bible study. And I told them, I said, I I'm having a, a theological crisis. I, told them. I said that I'm not sure that I believe many of the things I've been preaching and teaching about. Nobody said a word. I said, and I want to invite you all on kind of this journey of discovery um, so, that, so that we can maintain our faith and our integrity at the same time. 
Mm. And the people were for it, man. I mean, it blew my mind. Here I was in North Carolina, you know, the Bible <laughs> Belt. Right. And, um, and they took the journey. The interesting thing is when we started this kind of theological exploration, that's where the church started growing. I mm. mean, amazing. And so I really started developing what I wanted to maintain, and that is my own theological presuppositions. And the deep things I tell people, some of the traditional conservative doctrine we hold, you don't have to even take a theology class. When you study church history and you look at the formation of the canon, the formation of the faith, starting from, you know, whether it's the Edict of Milan at 313, Council of Nicaea at 325, Council of Thessalonica 380, go on. You realize, wait a minute, much of what we grew up believing traditionally has was created outside of the teachings of Jesus, right? So a lot now, you fast forward now, what I tell people is that there's a difference between being a Christian and a disciple of Jesus. Totally. Christianity is steeped in maintaining the power of the institution of Christianity, which, which you could call it, whether you call it Constantinian Christianity or Nicene Christianity. And, and that power has been maintained through oppression, domination, and conquest, right? But that is not in alignment with Jesus' teaching. And so what I have sought to do for the past 20 years, 20 plus years of, of my, my pastorate, is really make sure that who we are, if we call ourselves Christians, and we let's call ourselves Christians, but that we're Christians who take the teachings of Jesus seriously and live by those teachings and take the love ethic of Jesus seriously and are committed to the early Jesus movement and being among the Jesus people, right? And I tell people, you know, yeah, I'm sold out for Jesus, but not in the way most Christians are sold out for Jesus, right? So <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not sold out in name only, right? Right, right. I'm not sold out in the idea that Jesus is a tagline on my theology, right? I'm, I'm convinced and convicted, I tell them, by the Galilean sage, by the carpenter from Nazareth. That's who we follow. I say that in church because it's actually not just a spiritual or religious statement. It's a cultural and socioeconomic statement. When totally. I say I follow the teachings of a carpenter, that is a very powerful statement. Not a lord, not a king, not a, not a you know, aristocrat, um, a carpenter that our faith is shaped by the radical revolutionary love ethic of a carpenter, right? That's how we ought to shape ourselves. Go and make disciples. How do you make disciples? We baptize, and then beautiful part that most Christians miss, and teach what I have taught you. Mm. So what we do in Christianity, we have created teachings about Jesus, but not the teachings of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I often, the way I phrase it is I tell people, um, folks can be Christians and still behave in antichrist ways. <laughs> that Absolutely. is possible, you know. Is, in fact, we're seeing so much of it. I think in our own cultural moment. Absolutely. I I made a comment. It was part of a sermon. That same sermon, actually, where you get the clip from, or maybe it was another one. I talked about the difference between faith as belief and faith as action shaped by love. And I said, you know, if you think about slavery, there were Christians who could go to church at eleven o'clock and lynch a black body at one o'clock and felt there was nothing misaligned in doing it, right. which means that faith as an adherence to a set of ideas is different than faith as a commitment to a way of life. I agree. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I want to know 
you know, I think a lot of people listening are probably thinking, yes, I'm in, I love this, this is beautiful, I want to head in this direction, right? Um, where do you put the Bible nowadays? I, I think I, if I'm just being honest with you, I think I wrestle with this maybe the most because I feel like I'm caught between two extremes of the Bible is God's inerrant word. It's the blueprint for life. You know, just read it and you're good to go. And well, uh, we really can't trust the Bible. We have none of the original manuscripts. It's probably nothing to even take seriously. It's an ancient cultural set of scripts. So I'm like, well, I think I'm definitely not an inheritance. And also, I still find the Bible complicated and beautiful and also in, in a lot of ways authoritative. But I'm not sure what I'm how to negotiate that again. How do you see the scriptures now? Well, in that same clip, I, I talked about bibliolatry, right? How we, we, we worship the book and no longer engage with God. And what I tell people is that I'm not one of those persons who say, well, let's get rid of, let's get rid of the Bible at all. Um, I use it every week and I, I read from it. I, I still study. And, um, but I also realize is that God, as we understand God, is bigger than that book, right? So what I said in the clip is we are reading about people who had no Bible. Abraham had no Bible. Isaac had no Bible. So, so with this notion of a relationship, I understand when the Bible was written, when Israel wrote, began writing the Old Testament scriptures or the Hebrew scriptures. I understand all of that. I remember my first year of seminary, intro to the Old Testament, and I had a professor who was the editor of the Interpreter's Bible Dictionary, right? He was one of the, he was the Old Testament editor. This guy was thorough. And on Ooh. day one, on day one, he deconstructed the Bible so bad. I mean, I mean, so bad. Literal people got up in tears, walked out, never came back to school. I, I'm talking oh about he tore it to pieces. People were discombobulating. I'm sitting around, they just keep this stuff. I'm like, this is good stuff, right? And then, <laughs> yeah. and then he said, he said, and some of you may be saying, why do we need the Bible? He said, we don't need the Bible for the sake of the words alone, for the sake of the text alone. He said, but something happens when those words, right, find a landing place in your spirit guided by the Holy Spirit. He said, I know David probably didn't write Psalm 23, but my God, he said, when I read it after my mother died, he said, something began to move in my spirit. And, and so I don't look at the Bible as a history of humankind. You can't. It's Israel's history, especially of how they came to be. Right. I remember I got in trouble in Sunday school when I was a kid. My uncle was my Sunday school teacher. And, you know, back in those days, kids asked the best questions, theological questions. And I had a I could not get past this. I must have been eight or nine. I couldn't get past this. We went through the whole thing about Adam and Eve. And then we went through Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Then Cain is kicked out. And then I, then he's reading. And then it's like Cain got married. Well, I was like, Uncle Sinclair, where, where, did, where did the wife come from? Because if. Help me understand this because if you're saying these are the only people who exist, this man leaves the only people who exist and found a wife. Where? And he was like, well, there's some things in the Bible you just won't understand. Right? <laughs> so, so, you know, as I got old, I realized, well, this wasn't the Jebusites' history or the Amalekites' history or the Moabite history. This was Israel's history, right? Hmm. So I realized that much of what we read is bound by, by the cultural milieu of the day, right? I realized that much of it is not applicable to this modern way of living. Ideas are transcendent, some, um, but I'm not going to, if, if my neighbor feels wrong, go and take him two of my oxen and, and be like, here, right? So, so that's not real. And I do realize the oppressive nature of even much of the Old Testament, shaped by patriarchy women. 
But there's still places where if you move beyond the, paper, the ink, the paper, something profound happens that is transformative. I encounter that in certain places in the scripture, and I encounter it in the teachings of Jesus. And so someone said to me at Bible study years ago, Pastor, do you believe the Bible is inspired by God? And I said, absolutely not. The person said, what do you mean? He was a guest. What do you mean? You're going to preach up the gospel. You don't believe. I said, well, let me ask you a question, brother. Are you married? Yes. How long have you been married? 23 years. Are you in love with your wife? Deeply. I says, have you ever written your wife a poem? He said, and he started smiling. He said, yes, a time or two I've written a poem. <laughs> he said, and I said, well, I'm not going to ask you to cite the poem here. I said, for this, I said, what was the inspiration to your poem? He said, my wife. I said, so your poem was inspired by your wife. I said, inspiration does not mean authorship. Mm. Your wife did not write it. She was the inspiration for it. So, brother, I said, when you tell me that the Bible is divinely inspired, you're right to a degree. Yes, God is the inspiration to people trying to write down this encounter, this relationship. But God is not the author of the text, mm -hmm. the inspiration behind the text. And so, you know, I am, again, I do not believe they have the Bible. I am not on the extreme to say, let's just scrap it all away. I think the Bible, like any people's history, is filled with flaws and smudges and redactions. And to dismiss the Bible would mean that so many other historical texts are irrelevant because they're not accurate. So I wouldn't say that. I, I'm, I'm like you. I'm in between. But I, I, am, I lean heavy as a Christian. People ask me, Pastor, where do I start reading the Bible as a follower of Jesus? I said, well, Mark, then Matthew, then Luke. And then we can go from, we can talk about it after that. Um, because we're kind of grafted into Israel's history through Jesus, because Jesus was a practicing Jew. But at the same time, something beautiful was created, not a new religion called Christianity, but a new way of being in this world shaped by those teachings, right? Yeah, that's really helpful, really good. And I think what you're reinforcing is that the answer is complicated, <laughs> because we're dealing with Very, theology, but, right? <laughs> dealing with theology, and I'm only, but here it is. Most answers are complicated. We live in a world, though, that likes to bifurcate everything. It's either yay or nay, black or white. And so even in my, my, the clip that went viral, I got people sending me letters, messages, stuff, saying, you know, uh, you know, I can't believe you're a pastor. You, you support abortion. Well, in the clip, I actually never said that. I, I simply said, because I don't, I don't support abortion, right? But... I do not believe at all that we have some right to tell women what to do. So what I said, because you can, I'm an, I'm an ally of women who find themselves in position. But in the clip, I simply said, I said, you have preachers who are saying they're against abortion. I said, good, but well, don't have one. Because I can be against abortion and not punitive, and, and, right? And be understanding and stand in solidarity with those who find themselves in that situation. I don't have to, because I don't support it means I need to bash you and beat you down, right? So I believe that a woman has a right to do what she wants. And I don't stand on the side saying that hypocritically and like, but you know, you know, you need to get the soul saved. You need to, no, no, you're good with God. But mm -hmm. life is challenging. Life is complicated. There are decisions we find ourselves making that we don't always want to make. And there are things we find ourselves doing that we don't always want to do, but it does not negate who we are in terms of children of God. We live this life, right, in all of its complexity. And the last thing we need in complicated times is someone telling us that in the midst of our complexities, in the midst of our decisions we have to make, that by the way, you better make the right one or else God is gonna punish you and send you straight to hell.
That's right. that doesn't make sense to me. Or we're going to make laws to make sure that you're punished for it. I mean, oh, that's another big movement. You know, I've been tracking this uh, abolitionist yeah. movement that's kind of growing inside the pro-life movement. And it's like, it's wild. They, they literally are trying to pass laws to criminalize women who have abortions as quote unquote murderers. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's wild. And women, so, yeah, are yeah. Part of, and women are part of that movement, leading that movement. And that is bizarre in some ways, but I get it. I get, yeah. I get, I get the complicated tentacles of oppression unrecognized. Yeah. Well, that kind of brings us to, you know, I think a, a key part of the conversation. I am someone who is very new to uh, my own decolonization and just realizing that the world around me was not all that I was told it was. You know, as a white uh, cis man uh, who's a Christian evangelical, the world's kind of built for me, frankly. And, you know, you just don't see what you don't see until one day you start seeing stuff. Um, I'm kind of curious for you, uh, you know, your interactions with, with like this white evangelical movement. When did you first encounter like this white evangelical thing, this conservative, you know, bubble? And what were your interactions like as you started kind of discovering like some of the tentacles and how deep some of those things go? Yeah, a lot of my interactions started, I, you know, I kind of lived in this kind of vacuum, even though I started doing my own theological exploration about 25. It was always questioning curiosity and expansion. And I would say my meeting these hardcore, what I would call evangelicals, came in, in, in divinity school. Mm. Um, some of my classmates were, I mean, hardcore evangelicals. I mean, people think because Duke was a United Methodist institution, there was this liberalism. Remember, the United Methodist Church is, is, is fracturing right now. Yes. Schism, and it's around, you know, uh, homosexuality in their book of discipline. They do not ordain people who identify as, as LGBTQ+. And so United Methodists weren't all that, all that liberal and progressive, right? So there were many conservative evangelical Methodists who I met who were from the South um, and other parts. And so it was the first time I, I kind of started hearing this kind of hardcore evangelicalism, especially around the two issues, right? Abortion and, and, and LGBTQ. And it was mind-blowing to me because most did not hear the gross inconsistencies in their theological argument. Now, it's easy for me to be on the other side and say it's inconsistent, but the, the, the obvious inconsistencies were at the time with some I had agreed with is that you, you are pro-life, well, then you're pro-life, but then you're also pro-death penalty. That's kind of inconsistent, <laughs> right? right? So that's an easy target. But, but you say you worry about children, and it seems like, like many are only concerned with children in utero, right? But the minute they're born, well, to hell with them. We don't care, especially if you were born on the wrong side and the wrong color, the wrong wrong socioeconomic bracket. Yeah, we we, we believe in life until we have to be responsible for the life. Mm-hmm. And then once we have to be responsible for the life, then we, we don't care if we enact and support policies that, that, that make it difficult to support the poor. Although in the Old Testament, everywhere you see this idea of care for the vulnerable, for widows, for children, all over the Old Testament. So so what I'm also cognizant of is this kind of selective, right, exegetical work that really turns into eisegesis, right? Um, but yeah, I, I think I encountered that in seminary that were very political, politically super conservative. I remember we had, I met a brother in my years there who was a student at Liberty, and my God, the exchanges we had um, were, were you know, classic as I think about it this day. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it was one thing, the thing that always blew my mind was that I could be adamant in my opposition to, the, to, to his theology or their theology, 
and then say to myself, "Hey man, let's let's go have a let's go get a bite." For them, if if they were opposed to my view, all of a sudden I became an evil person. So it was no, it, there was no let's agree to disagree and move on. It was if you don't see my way of thinking, I can't engage with you. And and when I experienced that, I asked the brother. I said, "Now, in whose name are you doing?" Jesus. So, so, so this is the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus says that you don't agree with me. I distance myself from you. If you don't believe like me, that's what you think. I distance myself from you. And then I started pulling scripture and scripture, the times where Jesus healed people who are not Jewish and never told them, well, no, by the way, you got to be circumcised if you want this power. Or those who are not Jewish, who are beneficiaries of the healing, transformative power. And there was no, and then there, there was nothing. I was on a radio show. I co-host a radio show um, on Tuesdays with Al Sharpton, right? Oh. For the past, what, 10 years. And so there's his brother who used to always call me because it's like he would watch my sermons on Sunday, call in on Tuesday, and was always challenging me about everything I said because of my stance. I was, I support abortion. I support gay. He was going on. And so one day, and it was happening to be the last day I ever called because I, I got, a little fret, got a little tired with him. And I said... <laughs> And I said, brother, brother, so-and-so, I said, do you see me as an enemy of the church? He said, yes, you're part of it. He actually said this, of like an antichrist movement. And, 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 but, but you know, there's a reckoning coming. I said, let me ask you again. Do you view me as an enemy of Christianity? He said, absolutely. I said, good. I'm an enemy of Christianity. Now tell me in Jesus name, how you treat your enemy. <laughs> it was silence. Mm. I said, it seems like you've forgotten. Jesus said, love your enemy. Mm. Pray for those who persecute you. I said, this doesn't seem very loving. You don't ever call it love. Mm. So you have to now, I have to wonder whether you really follow Jesus. I don't doubt you're a Christian, but I don't take Jesus's teaching seriously. That was the last time I ever called the show. Right? <laughs> and, 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 but most are like that. So I always push them to get back to teachings of Jesus, because when you talk to many hardcore evangelicals, very rarely do they quote anything Jesus said. Very rarely. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 my own tradition, I started kind of realizing that over time. And then I also realized that, I mean, listen, we, we all have to interpret scripture. It's a complicated tradition. People disagree all the time. But my tradition couldn't admit that they were, you know, also interpreting scripture. They were just in their minds, just <laughs> reading the Bible clearly. I'm like, well, I mean, listen, I, to put it crassly, we all kind of pick and choose what's applicable, what's not. Like, we, we all do this, including yeah. you. And they would go, no, no, no. We're just standing on God's clear word. <laughs> and I, I think the more I thought about it, because I wanted, I wanted to take my faith seriously. I wanted to listen to what my pastor said when they said, don't trust me, read the word yourself. I start reading it. I'm like, there's a lot of talk about how we treat poor people and orphans and widows. And James five is like, a, I mean, in today's culture, a Marxist, you know, quote unquote yeah. manifesto piece of like, hey, if you're oppressing your workers, um, woe to you, rich young, you know, uh, rich oppressors. And I'm like, whoa, I've never heard this ever preached on in my in my context, right? <laughs> so I, I I certainly resonate with that. Um, it's weird, man. Like, I don't know how they don't see it. Um, they are just convinced that, like, nope, I'm just interpreting it or I'm just reading the Bible plainly and you, the enemy, are not. But as I've been doing my own reading and just, you know, understanding of my own evangelical history, 
it seems like, and some people don't like when I say this, but I'm I'm just reading the, the sources that this is more about a white supremacy complex oh, than yes, about like a, a Jesus following complex. Because yeah. that's just that's just kind of the history in our country of the white Protestant evangelical movement. I mean, flat out. No, you know, you're absolutely right. When I my my one of my mentors, he was actually a professor of theology at Duke. He was an amazing human being. And um I remember the first day of class intro theology we get the syllabus and the first book you think is going to be something you know let's get some let's get some bard or some quietness we no the first book on the syllabus we had to read was bury my heart at wounded knee and i said well what is this and and someone asked why are we why are we starting here he said because you cannot understand theology in the west unless it is through the narrative of domination and conquest hmm. he said christianity at its outset, not the Jesus movement, Christianity is a tool of empire. And as a tool of empire, it is designed to maintain power through imperialistic strategy. And for us in the West, that means that it leans heavily on white supremacy, patriarchy, right? And narratives of superiority. That is what this is rooted in. And as you said, folk don't like to hear that. Right. But then you have to then, as you just as you said, then make that distinction that that's a separate line in the line of following the teachings of Jesus. And and there are some who are apparently OK with remaining in that line. Right. Remaining. And that's fine. That's fine. But don't say things, as you said, like this is the way of the book, because then the problem is I will then pull scripts like yesterday. I, I preached on unstoppable love. Um, it was Pride Sunday at our church, and it was a Pride Parade in New York City. And um, I remember the first time we did Pride Sunday, and we wore the Pride colors. And the church acquired it. I did. And a young man who was, who, was, who was gay came up to me, I mean, in shambles, crying. And he said, Pastor, if, if my pastor had done what you did today, said what you said today, he said, it would have changed my entire life. He said, it would have it would have." It would have helped me see that I have a place with God, right? Mm. I mean, and so yesterday on Friday Sunday, I, I went to the classic love scripture, right? First Corinthians thirteen. That's right. And, and people love the part that says about you know love is patient, love is all that stuff. But in the beginning of that scripture, and Paul says, if you have gifts of eloquence and power, and you have the kind of faith that can make mountains jump on your word. He said, but you have no love, it means nothing. He says, if you can, if you can give all you have to the poor and martyr yourself to be burned at the stake, but you don't have love, it gets you nowhere. I mean, without love, he said, all of that, all of those things, you are bankrupt if you have no love. I said, and this is in the scripture. And then down that same verse, Paul says, what we know and say about God. It's incomplete because God is mystery. Like, mm. it's right there. So when you point that out to somebody, it's wait a minute, because people like saying this, well, I know God doesn't want this. I know God. No, the same scripture you're using, and the person, by the way, you use the most, Paul, because most most Christians, evangelicals, are Paul and not Christian. Right? Yes. <laughs> Man, yes. <laughs> right? So I said, this is Paul. Paul right. saying this. So, you know, I, I, I'm I'm amazed by it. But I do know what it is that when you, your conviction causes kind of blinders um, and you don't want to see anything else. I get it. 
And what I realized, there's this little parable going around on, on the internet. I don't know if you heard it. It's about the monkey and the tiger. And the monkey tells the, the tiger in an argument, and the monkey says that grass is blue. The tiger says, no, grass is green. And the monkey says, let's go to the king, which is the lion. Let's go to the king, for the king to settle this. The monkey goes to the king and says to the king, king, the tiger and I have an argument. I told the tiger that grass was blue. Tiger says grass is green. What do you say, king? Is the grass blue? The king said, yes, the grass is blue. The monkey was excited. And the king then looks at the tiger and says that you will suffer punishment for this. He said, five years of silence. The monkey leaves celebratory, gleeful that he was right. And then when the monkey leaves, the tiger accepts the punishment and says to the king, King, um, why are you punishing me? He said, isn't grass green? And the king said, yes, grass is green. He said, but I'm not punishing you because the grass is green. I'm punishing you because you actually argued with the fool. Mm. Mm. He said, and in the story, there are some people, no matter what you say, yeah. no matter what you show, will not change their conviction. And so we will be the ones to suffer when we argue with food. You know? How, yeah, that, that kind of brings me to a question I wanted to get to before we run out of time here. You know, I, I, I'm sure that, that I'm sure you're aware of the past couple of years, the political climate has just gotten, I mean, out of control. Um, you know, watching January 6th from my, my, my computer screen, I was just in shock and horror watching Jesus flags. And it was just shocking for me. I mean, th th this is my faith tradition really birthed this, this white evangelical complex. Um, and a lot of people listening and I'm one of them, um, 2016 was a moment where I went, uh, the, 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 the smell is so great. I can't ignore the stench anymore. Something is, I don't know what it is. I have no language for anything yet. I just know something is wrong. Um, and I think a lot of people who are new to this way of thinking and this kind of work are thinking to my, I'm thinking to myself, like, how do I combat this stuff without getting in the mud and participating in the dehumanization that people like Trump and this far right evangelical movement really are based on? I mean, I'm tracking the demonic language, the groomer language, mm -hmm. you know, the, the left is trying to trans kids. And I'm like, man, this is so dehumanizing. It, it only puts us on the path to violence. But yeah. to how do I resist this without becoming part of the very cycle of chaos that I'm trying to stop? Any advice for people and, and any wisdom from, from, from your time, you know, being in, in, in these spaces? Yeah, I, I would say, well, first thing is to recognize you, you, you did it so beautifully, is that historically, this is the way of oppression, right? You dehumanization and demon demonization go hand in hand. Yeah. You look at this across the spectrum of white supremacy in this country, that which we don't understand or that which we seek to co-opt, we dehumanize and demonize so as to justify the barbaric treatment, enslavement, oppression, whether it is of African people or even of women. You dehumanize and you demonize. That's a strategy. That strategy has not changed. It is still yeah. the same strategy. So it is the same thing that the far right evangelicals do, whether it's Democrats, like you said, making children trans, all these things we do to, to delegitimize their humanity. I think, honestly, when I uh, heard about your desire for me to come on and started looking at some of the videos, looking at the work, I think you're doing the work. I think one of the ways that the work done is to be vocal. So many like you, Tim, that I've met 
in my work, in my activism over these years here, are not as vocal. They will, they know, they understand, but they will not use their platforms and even their pulpits to be vocal. And I had to really call a few out. I said, if you, if you, if you say the right things in these meetings, but then you're silent in your pulpits, I said, you're not doing this work any good. Because the reality is that you have been given an opportunity for people to hear you, right? It's like, it's like, and, and here it is. Most of my colleagues don't want, you know, don't want to be canceled or don't want to be criticized. It takes a lot to put yourself and speak on what you really believe. I mean, I'm telling you, I, I got the messages and emails and, and fan mail, we call it, proof. But, but, but. But if you are convicted by this and this deep abiding love of people, that you will stand on that and be willing to stand at the forefront and be willing to accept what comes that way. And so I'm sure you've gotten criticism and will continue to get criticism because there are some who probably view you as betraying the faith, right? And the like. I think you and many people like you must continue to do what you're doing. And that is to either use your platforms or create them to speak this truth to power and to let people like me, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be honest, because we all operate with bias. There are many, there are many uh, African-American Christians who assume that all white people are, are evangelical and right and begin with an air, a, a kind of hermeneutic of suspicion of whiteness because of the history. And so it is always those kind of creative partnerships and collaborations that we have to let people know, no, that's not the case. That's not just like people try to label all African-Americans the same way. We can't label all whites evangelicals the same way. I said, but I think you and those like you are doing it. I mean, this is a courageous thing. We may not see it. You may not even say it is, see it as courageous, but it is a courageous thing, especially in this climate where people find it okay to make a swift transition from anger to violence, mm, right? Exactly, exactly. It is very courageous to stand and say the things you're saying knowing that the consequences can very easily move from anger to violence. I mean, at our church, we've always had security at the church, but you know, because there's so many people in the building, because I told you, I came to the church, it was 200 people. Problem was, it was 200 people in the sanctuary that sat 2,000. So it was like cavernous and empty, man. Like it was not, <laughs> nobody in there, right? right? And so, you know, we've had to have security and they, you know, I'm the person who says, listen, I trust God, I'm moving forward. They're like, they're passing, we're gonna put another person here on the side of you because, you know, to watch the congregation because we don't know. You know, we don't know. I had a woman two weeks ago try to rush the pulpit. Um, and, you know, thank God for security. And, you know, and so you you just don't know. But, but I think it is, it is that radical faith and trust in God that what you're saying, what you're believing, the path you are on, it's not about whether it's the right path. It's, it's, it's a transformative path. Yeah, you know, can I be honest with you, just fully transparent? Yeah. I just don't want to be one of those white moderates. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, like yeah, no, no. I, I read MLK's letters from a Birmingham jail, and I'm like, I don't want to be this moderate. That's like, well, both sides, you know, well, maybe not yet, but maybe in the future. And yeah, I yeah. just think the more I'm reading a evangelical American history, the more I'm reading that, the more I'm reading and understanding the scriptures and just the clear threads woven throughout of God takes sides like with the God drowns the empire in Exodus. He literally yeah, yeah. drowns Pharaoh a little too violent for my taste personally. Okay. <laughs> but the point is that like God took a side, right? He freed yeah. people in slavery and destroyed the empire 
oppressing people. And this is all woven throughout scripture. Yeah. Now, I look at this, I'm like, well, if I'm going to claim to be a Jesus follower and, I, and I'm following, you know, um, uh, a man, a, car, a blue collar worker under the Roman occupation as really an oppressed minority group, um, I have to like, you know, to put it in James Cohn's language, I have to be willing to be touched by you know, the oppression that people experience in those circles about if I'm going to claim solidarity, frankly. Now, I I must say as a white man, even still, my privilege carries me very far. I very rarely get death threats. You know, I'm able to speak the the bro-evangelical language. So it's not like I'm getting death threats all the time or anything like that. But the point I'm trying to make is that I don't want to live my life and die and think, man, I should have pushed harder for equity, you know, or for solidarity or for speaking truth to power. I just don't want to live that way. Well, here's what I would tell you, Tim. You start talking about this awakening in 2016 and, and since. That's, you know, going on seven years, or oh, seven years plus if you hit November. Um, in the grand scheme of things, that's not a long time. So here's what I would say pastorally, right? Be patient with yourself, mm. right? Because you are moving in the direction that says that that something has been aroused within you that is unsettled and actually discontent with much of what you assumed before. That transition and not tra that evolution is happening. And we don't evolve in 30 seconds. We don't evolve in two years, but the evolution is happening and your intentionality, even around raising this question, making the statement just made, I don't want to be lukewarm. I want to be on the side. I don't want to just bask in my privilege. I want to stand in solidarity. And yes, that is not something that is said by many white men, right? <laughs> so, especially in some who even recognize the flaws in radical evangelicalism. It's not said. It's not said by many African-American preachers, right? Who support some of the same, I tell people, the difference between the black evangelical and the white evangelical is, you know, color, but not theology mm. for the most part, maybe on the issues of race. But other than that, the right. theology is exactly the same. Right. So so I think be patient and not patient to the point of stagnation, but patient to the point that you don't feel like you have to get to some place in a hurry, but you're moving. I mean, mm. look, I'm on this show called the New Evangelical. Right. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> Right. I mean, that's a big deal. And, mm -hmm. and also, when you talk about Old Testament, here's a here's a theological language that most folk, whether you're conservative or moderate, don't like. I am of the opinion, theologically, this idea we call God, although it is a God of ontotheology, it is this kind of manufactured, created idea. But even in the scriptures, what we see is something that we're afraid of because of the language we use traditionally, words like omniscient, omnipresent. All this, I mean, all all powerful, omnipotent, all this. And I tell people those words are, are horrible words, in part not because the words are horrible, because the English language is so so slight. And so if we say God is eternal, God is mystery, that means when we speak of God, we're speaking of God anthropomorphically, and we're also using a language that makes us feel comfortable. We have no idea what we talk about. As Paul said, we look through a glass darkly right now. But there's something I like to see based on those scriptures that I can make a case for, and that is a God who evolves. Mm. That is clear. When you see things like God and God change God's mind. Yeah. And because because a God who knows everything, how does that God change God's mind? Right. And or or if a God who knows everything, knows all, controls all, 
How will you get there after the flood? And it said, and God regretted what God had done. I mean, there are these moments where you get a glimpse. Yeah, you get this God who don't play and he, but then there's, uh, and, and there's this other image that of a God who's like, as time progresses, is discovering things. Like, like with Abraham, you know, what we call the great test and sacrifice his son. And towards the end, and, and we know the, the kind of redaction in that text in, in, in Genesis because in the Hebrew, it is God having the encounter. The redaction was incomplete. It made it seem like it was an angel having the encounter. It is God. Because at the end, when Abraham relents, and the Lord said, Abraham, Abraham, Abraham stops. Here's what the text says in Hebrew. God said, now I know you fear me. Mm. Now I know. Well, hold on. How did God discover if God already knew? And then more than that, I had a teacher one night in class, and they said, after these things, God tested Abraham. I asked a teacher, when you give a test to your student, who is the test for, your student or you? She said, actually, it's for me, because I need to know what my student has learned. Exactly. Mm. Mm. A God who knows all doesn't need to find out the student. Mm. Right? So we see this big picture of a God who's evolving. And by the time you get to this manifestation in Jesus, something radical has happened. This Jesus, who, if you're evangelical, you say this is the incarnation of deity. Yeah. If so, if Jesus is the incarnation of God, that means that what is Jesus's priority is God's priority. What is Jesus's focus is God's focus. And, and the image that Jesus gives us of God is a God who's discovered a different way. Mm. That way is the way of love. God is the father in the, in the prodigal son story, right? Who, yes. who, who's experienced all those things. And, and we, the church, the traditional church, the conservative church, the evangelical church, we are the older brother, mad because the father still loves. He has space for love, space for grace. So I think, man, I admire what you're doing, and I think that you are on that path. And, and I think as long as you're committed to that, you will continue to evolve. In fact, the only, the only time your evolution should stop is the day you take your last breath. Mm. Your growth should never stop. Yeah. And you should, you should see the stages of transformation along the way, where you started here, and then you're here, and now you're here, and that commitment to growth, then watch this, the commitment to growth will put you in spaces that you can no longer move away from because it's the natural gravity of your heart. Mm. So you don't have to try to get to spaces, the natural gravity of your heart will pull you. Mm. You will be, not, your, not verbally, but your soul has taken itself. Man, that's a word. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the term process theology, but I hear some process theology uh, in, in the way you're talking. I, I've I've interviewed Thomas Ord a few times. He wrote a book about oh, wow. this. And, uh, and uh, anyway, it's great. Okay, one last question again. I, I want to I respect your time. You know, yeah. you mentioned earlier that you guys stopped keeping count of your church size uh, yeah. after you hit like 11,000. Yeah. What that tells me is that you are the pastor of a mega church. Like despite, you know, whatever good or bad, it's a, it's that's a mega church through and through. You know, how, how do you, um, practice, you know, things that keep you humble and keep you not from becoming another casualty of that mega church world that you and I have seen all too yeah. often happen. What are some things for you? Well, I'm going to make, this is, this is actually easy. You know, Great. Paul says, this is, I'm, I'm so amazed when I quote Paul, right? But I realize my beef <laughs> is not what Paul is, how Paul is you. But yes, <laughs> you know, Paul, Paul talked about this thorn. So man, the thing that keeps me grounded, him. Because most people who encounter me don't realize like I'm this mega church, quote unquote mega church pastor, right? right? I'm who I am in the pulpit, it's who I am outside of it. Um, 
So I was born with a rare disease, right? At 10 years old, they told my parents I wouldn't live to 13, right? Um, my next birthday, I'll be 53, right? Um, I was born with no antibodies. I have no real structured immune system. So wow. until they found this new treatment and that discovered fullness of my, my condition, um, my life was marred by infections, hospitalizations, and near-death experiences all the time. I've had sepsis three times, survived all three times, and all three times it was MRSA, which is the worst bacteria. My condition caused a massive stroke in 2018, massive hemorrhagic stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't talk, and my left side was paralyzed. Um, I've been hospitalized in my life well over 25 times. Um, and so it's difficult to be full of yourself when, when you don't know what's going to happen the next moment. You know, I had some anxiety the past few weeks because when I start the new treatment, there are these infusions I do every three weeks. Take about three and a half hours. They give me these synthetic antibodies. They last about three. The antibodies last about three weeks. And um, since I started that treatment in 2017, I have had no infections, thank God. And I just went through two bouts of infection, sinus infection, a bad throat infection. And I started freaking out like, oh, my God, I haven't had infection in, in, in six years. What's going on? The treatment's not working. So I've had all these experiences. My last experience. Is when I was 21, I was in college and I was getting all kind of preaching engagements, man. I was, what I was experiencing at 21 was mind blowing. And I was not very humble about it, right? I was like, you know, I felt good about myself. My wife and I, we were in school. We actually had our son while we were in college. My son lived my junior year in my dorm, right? He was a baby. But 21, I went to hear revival, my grandmother. And I was sitting back the whole time, just critical to preach. Uh, sermon's terrible. You know? <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would have done X, Y, Z. I leave the service, go to my grandmother's house. I'm like, she said, what do you think? Oh, grand, grand. I was like, I, yeah, it was okay. You know, I'm all, she's looking at me like I'm crazy, but I'm, I'm not even seeing how crazy I look. I leave the house. I'm driving home to my mom's house. A dog shoots in front of the car. I swerve to avoid it. I put it in the brake. I gas. Boom hit a tree. The impact was so intense, so intense, it propelled me through the front windshield. And and let me tell you, I was crazy. I hit this, whether you want to believe it, well, it's so hard to fathom. I hit the windshield basically mouth first, broke every bone in my mouth. My mouth was wired most of the summer, so all the engagements I had, I couldn't preach. What? I was in the hospital. And I remember my father brought me this old Cokesbury Methodist hymn. I couldn't talk. I'm in such pain, the head, the face, everything. And I said, now, you know, you're kids, so you play this. God, well, if I open this up to you, you're trying to tell me something. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I opened it up to this hymn. I said, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. And then the chorus says, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. I read it and started crying. I heard a voice as clear as we're talking say to me, Michael, I've given you the gift and I can take it away just as easy. Hmm. And that was all I heard. From that moment on, I said, God, you will never have to worry about me in arrogance. You'll never have to worry about me. So so I'm not this one who, you know, if people think with our congregation, I'll have all these people. I've never been really a social media person, right? I'm not, materialism is not my thing, right? So you don't see me on preaching in the $500 sneakers and the $400 <laughs> pants. Because I tell some of my colleagues, it's hard 
it's hard to have a real strong crit critique of class when you are a poster child for for, for you know for capitalism. So 100%. yo, so you know those my my life, my condition, and the things that keep me grounded. It's hard to be full of yourself when you can wake up tomorrow morning and have to be rushed to the hospital. Yeah. Right. So I walk in that same kind of grace every day. The things I've survived, and people don't know your story, right? The things I've gone through. So when I get criticism, I'm like, man, criticism is nothing to me. Like, try, try laying in a hospital and then telling you that, you know, when I had sepsis the third time, they said that I had, you know, three days to live, and and trying to figure out your life in three days. Wow. So oh, wow. that keeps me grounded, brother. Wow. Well, I mean, I really appreciate you sharing that part of your life with us and with the community. And Pastor Mike, I really appreciate you making time and coming on. It was a really great conversation. I hope that we keep in touch. Like I said, I'm not far. I have, I have friends in Harlem. I've been there many times. Come on. So, so uh, we'll definitely have to try and connect in person. I'm, I'm preaching in Philadelphia next Sunday at Mount Zion Baptist Church. You lie. Yeah. Yeah. Mount next Zion Sunday? Yeah. In Philadelphia. All right, I'll 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 DM you because I, right, I mean, I'm I'm ten minutes from Philly. I'm right over the bridge. So oh, yeah, we got we so. got to come. We got to come. We got to come. <laughs> uh, where can folks find you? Do you have social media? Yeah, at Mike Walren, M I K E W A L R O N D. I'm on Instagram and Twitter, and the church is fcbcnyc.org or on social media fcbcnyc. You can find all that. I want to come back, man, because I just I, I just uh, uh, came out with a book last month. Um, right. And I'd love to talk about it because the book is called Searching for Agabus. Very I little mean, known New Testament prophet. And the subtitle is Embracing Authenticity and Finding a Way to You. Basically, I use the book to critique what I call this culture of addiction that is running rampant in our culture right now. So, yeah. So, we got to talk about it, man. I'm in. I'm 100% in. Pastor Michael, make it happen. Thanks for coming on. We'll talk again Thank soon. Thank you, sir. Peace, man.